What do you see? Our eyes are used to seeing that which is good for us. Opportunities for our business, for our career, for our enjoyment. But as the author of Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What do you see when you look at the cross? Pain, loneliness, despair, there are many people suffering who do not understand that Christ has taken all of this upon himself. For this reason, we want to challenge you. Choose a person you can make a commitment to for a year with the purpose of presenting Christ to them. This can be a friend, your boss, or a neighbor, anyone. Someone you will walk alongside, pray with, and help throughout the year 2020 with the sole objective of modeling the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Who do you see? Our passage this evening comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 11 or read on the screen below. This is the word of the Lord. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being lit down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these, thing, these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. So this evening, we begin week five, episode five of our series entitled Focus One 2.0, and we're looking into the life of Peter. And we will see that God 
mended a bridge and built a bridge between his heart and Peter's heart as he desires to do with us here in this story, in this event, in Acts chapter 11 and also Acts chapter 10, which Peter is recounting here in the passage that we read. I want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek into what took place and a little backdrop into what was happening beforehand because then you can see what is being shared, the message being delivered to us. You see, there's this man named Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was a centurion. He was a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred other men. That's why he was called a centurion. And he was also a devout believer in God. Now, this was totally abnormal because he believed in the God of Scripture. He believed in the God of Israel. And he was, in fact, devout. It says he prayed continually. He was very generous. He also began to evangelize his faith with others. As we'll see later, he gathered a whole bunch of people to his house to hear the message that Peter would bring. And he also shared the encounter that he had with the angel with some people that worked for him. He was an anomaly, though, because the vast majority of Roman citizens did not believe in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. They believed in many gods. They were polytheistic, or they practiced cult worship, or they followed after spirits, or many even were just really a religious. They didn't really have a particular faith. They just lived their life based upon what felt good to them. And yet, Cornelius was different. Now, there's a connection between Cornelius and another centurion that Jesus encounters in the Gospels. There is a centurion that Jesus comes to meet and who he praises for his faith in the God of Scripture and also in Christ as the Savior. And then Jesus gives his prophecy. He says that many will come from the east and the west and they will sit at the table with those of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Israelites, and the kingdom will be open to them. You see, Jesus' prophecy and what he says will take place is that people from all places, from all backgrounds, all races are invited to come to find favor and grace with God. And people will, in fact, sit together. People that were otherwise divided will come together. And so Cornelius, being this man of faith and being an anomaly in his culture, living in this town of Caesarea, which was on the coast, a port city, he has this vision. And it says that an angel comes to him in this vision, tells him that he is to send some men to Joppa, which is another town south of Caesarea in Israel, and is on the coast as well, and to ask for a man named Peter, Simon they call Peter, who is living and staying with a man also called Simon, who is a tanner. And so he hears of this, he hears that there's a message that Peter has to deliver to him that will enable him to be saved. And so being a devout man who believes in God, he, in, he takes this as a sign to go send for Peter, and he sends these, man, these men on their way to go find him. Now, the scene shifts, and we go to Peter. 
So these men are presumably, they're on the way to meet Peter, and Peter is in Joppa. Joppa is a beautiful city that is just south of modern-day Tel Aviv. I mean, if you go visit Tel Aviv, you'll visit Joppa. It's right there. It's this ancient port city, and it's kind of on this hilly area. It's totally beautiful. And Peter, it says, one day goes up onto the roof, on the terrace. They would have had flat roofs back then. And he goes up there to pray. And he's, we find out that he's actually waiting for lunch to be prepared because he's very, very hungry. But he goes up to pray, maybe to pass the time and to, to spend some time with God before he goes to eat a meal. And he's up there with the breeze off the ocean and the smell of the salt. And as he begins to pray, he says he falls into a trance. And the trance is somehow connected to his hunger. So this is like a divine hunger pain. This is like a hunger attack, but it's divine. And he goes into this trance, and he sees something completely bizarre. He sees a sheet falling from the heavens, falling from the sky, a sheet that's coming down on all four corners. And as he looks onto the sheet, he sees animals of different kinds, beasts of the field, reptiles, birds, and he's trying to determine what's going on. Like, is this some sort, of, sort of, some sort of test because I'm hungry? I'm very hungry. I'm having this trance-like state where I'm seeing this. this. This is from God. And he hears this voice to him. And the voice says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, immediately, Peter assumes that this is some sort of test because the animals that were on that sheet that he sees descending from the heavens is a mixture of clean and unclean animals. And Peter is a Jew. He is a Jew who still, even to this moment, is following Jewish customs and Jewish dietary restrictions and laws. He's very much Jewish. He identifies as a Jew. He is raised in that culture. He has been following, as he says, these rituals and these laws and these customs. His entire life, he says, I've never put anything in clean, unclean in my mouth. You see, Jews eat kosher that are following after the law. And so there are certain animals they cannot eat that are deemed unclean. And then there are some animals that are clean that they can eat, but even the clean animals have to be slaughtered and prepared in a certain way to maintain their cleanliness. And so he's deciphering what is happening here. What is God communicating? Is this being communicated to me from God? Certainly it seems as I've heard this voice telling me to rise, kill, and eat. And what God is doing is he is communicating an essential truth to Peter that's connected to his current desire. See, his current desire is for food. He's hungry. And he gives him this vision, this trance, to communicate something that he needs to see, that he has not to this point seen, through this desire of food. And so as it is falling down, and as he hears this voice that tells him to rise and kill and eat, Peter responds. Here's what he says in verse 14. He says in verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. It's like, I, I, I know it's a test. 
you're testing me. You're wanting to see if I'm hungry enough to break custom. I won't do it. I've never done it, and I won't do it today. And then the voice comes again a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. It says this happened three times, and then that vision, that sheet, was taken away up into heaven. So Peter, assuming this is a test about food, whether or not he'll eat certain foods, he thinks he's passed the test. I've never broken dietary custom. I will not do it now. And then he hears from this voice that what God calls clean, don't call common. He hears it three times. Perplexed, Peter is trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And then he hears a knock at the door, at the gate of where he's staying. And at the gate, there are three men who are asking for him. He hears a voice tell him to go down and to invite these men inside. And so Peter goes down, he opens a door, and it is three Gentile men, three non-Jewish men, who say that they are sent from a centurion in Caesarea to come and to ask Peter to go there and deliver a message to him. And Peter invites them in to stay with them. They stay the night and they eat that meal that was being prepared. Now, you can easily run past this, but what is taking place here is profound. Barriers are being broken. Barriers that have been in place for hundreds of years and have been in place in Peter's life is being broken down. Jews and non-Jews are eating together and staying in the same house, which was not common. Peter is acting a lot like Jesus acted during his public ministry, spending time with people and going to eat with people to the point where Jesus himself was labeled a sinner and a drunkard because he hung out with people that the culture and the Jewish establishment said was unacceptable. And Peter has invited these men in to eat with him and to stay with him. You see, what's happening right now in the beginning of the church, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, he's come alive on the third day, he's appeared to Peter and other disciples and many others. Then he's ascended into heaven and he's told Peter that you're going to be the rock of the church, that you're going to go share the gospel of grace. And he, tell, and he tells that also to the other disciples. And now these disciples, they go out as apostles and they begin to share the good news of Jesus, but they've been sharing it only to Jews. So all of the Christians at this point in the beginning of the church are predominantly Jewish. And there's this mixture taking place that God is breaking down here between the gospel of Jesus and the Christian faith and this deep-rooted Jewish cultural heritage and the rituals and traditions that go along with that. And what that has created is barriers between people. And God is breaking this down 
in Peter's life so that he might be a bridge to others, but God first is going to be a bridge to him to see Peter's heart more accurately reflect God's heart. And I have to imagine that a lot of things are beginning to come up into Peter's mind as this is unfolding. You see, Peter walked with Jesus for the three years of his public ministry. And there is an account in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, where Jesus is having a debate with Pharisees. Pharisees being the religious leaders of the Jewish faith, the religious establishment. He's debating with them about what food is appropriate to eat. They're talking about this very thing. What is clean, what is unclean, what is acceptable and unacceptable to eat. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is essentially, it doesn't matter as much about the food you put in your stomach, but what your heart produces. He says that you can follow all of the traditions and you can keep the customs, but if your heart is producing something that is not in accord with the actual intention of the commandment and it's producing something ugly like division and like hatred and like racism and discrimination, that is not at all the intention. That is certainly not a reflection of God's heart. You see here in Mark seven, Jesus is connecting consumption with production. What you consume will affect what you produce. And you can consume tradition and follow the rules and feel as if you're doing everything right, but when your heart is producing something ugly, that is not a reflection of God's heart, you need to check what you're consuming because it's producing something that is not in line at all with the intention of the rule or with the heart behind the commandment. And that's what is taking place here. That there have been all these rules that the Jewish believers have followed, and even the Jewish Christians have followed, and they think they're, they're doing it right, but what it's producing in them is not a reflection of God's heart at all. They're following all of these cultural traditions and rituals, and they're not eating unclean things, and they're, they believe in grace, and they, they're following after Christ, but they're dividing themselves against other people. You see, what you consume affects what you produce. So you need to ensure that you're consuming the right thing. You see, it matters what you watch. It matters what you listen to. It matters what you give attention to. Because what you give attention to, what you watch, what you listen, what you elevate, will affect what your heart produces. It will come out of you. And that's why all throughout Scripture there is a command for us to eat Scripture or to eat God's Word. Jeremiah chapter 15 says this. The prophet says, When I found your words, God, when I found your words, I ate them, and they were my joy and my heart's delight. Ezekiel talks about this as well, that God's Word is good for the heart. That when you consume God's Word, it is good for your heart. I'm going to tell you a story. It's a totally bizarre story. When I was in high school, I went to 
uh, a Christian school. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I attended a Christian school. And I remember this guy who came and talked about this very thing. And he said, you know, he read Jeremiah, he read Ezekiel, talked about eating scripture and consuming God's word and how it's important that you consume the right thing because then your heart produces, you know, is a reflection of what you consume. And the guy held up a Bible and ripped out pages and started to eat the pages of scripture in front of us. Now, to this day, that I feel, it feels very wrong. I think it's wrong. I think that's not okay to do. And he just ate it. And then he told us, I go through Bibles all the time. I, eat, I just eat Bibles. I'm like, I don't know if that is, I mean, I'm not even like, I don't believe it, but I don't know if you're supposed to actually eat the Bible. But he did. I mean, he took it literally. I'm not telling you, listen, if you have a Bible in front of you, please don't rip out the pages and start to eat it. That's not the intention. You know that. Some people don't. So I wanted to let you know, don't eat the actual pages, but consume it, right? That's the intention is to consume it because God's word is good for the heart. Jesus says this too. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life, something you are to consume. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever consumes of me, whoever comes to me will never go hungry because I'm the bread of life. You see, Jesus is the eternal bread. He is the one that brings our heart joy and our heart delight. He is the one that satisfies our heart. He is the one that when we consume him and his word, which is all about him anyway, so when you consume consume any part of God's word, the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. It's all pointing to him. And so when you consume God's word, you are consuming Christ, the bread of life, the eternal bread, that is joy for your heart and is delight for your heart. And that is a, a beautiful promise, but it, something happens for us. If we're honest, that bread becomes stale becomes stale and we fall in to rituals and customs and traditions especially if you've been reading and consuming scripture for a long time you kind of get to the point where you're like i've heard it read that passage before i've heard that sermon before i've heard about god's grace about a billion times i know most of the stories of jesus Maybe you're new to the faith and you don't connect with that. But at some point, you will feel yourself slipping into traditions, slipping into ritual, seeing that the eternal bread of life that gives the promise and the truth of joy and delight for your heart becomes stale bread. We see, we are a lot like the Israelites. The Israelites, in the Old Testament, God uses Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Egypt was oppressing them treated them like worse than the animals. And God rescues them from that oppression, frees them, and they're in the wilderness wandering on their way to the promised land, and God gives them bread from heaven, manna, this miraculous bread that when they eat it, it causes their hunger to go away, and it satisfies them. Unbelievable. But guess what happens? That becomes stale. They start to complain I don't want this bread anymore. Yeah, sure, it satisfies us. Sure, it's 
literally miraculous bread falling from heaven, but we want something different. We want to go back to Egypt. Yeah, we were oppressed there, but we like the food. We like some of the things there. It leads the Israelites to get to the point to where they actually erect a golden calf and worship that golden calf instead of God, something that connects them to that old way of life because that bread has become stale. You see, we're a lot like them. We're a lot like them. Get to the point where I, I know it, I get it, I understand, I've heard it. I want some variety, I want something different. I want to consume something new, something fresh, something that is made in kind of a different image. And whenever we begin to go consume something different and we erect these idols, these golden calves, because we're tired of the eternal bread that's become stale, we've slipped into tradition and ritual and custom. And Whenever we go after something else, some other type of bread, some other type of idol, we start to consume that. It's always made in the image of our own comfort. It, we literally craft it. We go after the things that we think are going to make us feel better, going to make us feel more comfortable, going to provide for us. We become our own God to follow after our own bread. And when that inevitably leads to us feeling dissatisfied, many times instead of turning back to the eternal bread that can satisfy our hunger eternally, provide joy and delight to our heart, we'll go and erect another image of comfort. Try to consume that. And yet the eternal bread is given to us. You see, when you begin to consume anything that is man-made, it will produce man-made ugliness. When you consume anything that is man-made, man-made idol, man-made comfort, man-made promises, it will produce man-made ugliness in you. It will not reflect God's heart. And this is what happened to Peter. You see, Peter is connected to and associated with the party that we read about in Acts chapter 11, the party known as the circumcision party. You probably heard that. You're like, what is the circumcision party? It's exactly like it sounds. It is a group of Jews who are very strong on circumcision. They are Jewish Christians who are connected so deeply to their culture and their customs and their traditions that though they believe in the grace of Jesus Christ, they believe that anyone that's not Jewish should get circumcised. You're not truly a Christian. You're not truly a follower of God. You're not truly a follower or a child or son and daughter of the king until you get circumcised. That's why they're known as the circumcision party. You had to become Jewish and follow and believe in Christ for you to truly be saved. And Peter has been associated with these people. And these people are so, they're so insulated. They put up so many barriers that they are angry that the word of God went out to non-Jewish people. Because as I told you, at this point, the gospel of grace is being shared almost exclusively with Jewish people. And yet God is breaking down barriers because this is not a reflection of his heart. It is, in fact, ugly. Peter says in verse 1 through 3 of Acts chapter 11, when he goes before them, he says that they had heard 
that the Gentiles had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You went to these people that we would never even give a thought to, would never even look at, let alone eat with them, and then you shared the word of our faith with them? Uncircumcised, non-Jewish people, people that don't eat kosher, they eat unclean things? You see, what this has caused in Peter and other Christians at the beginning of the church was division and distance and discrimination and racism because they had begun to slowly creep into tradition and custom. And the word was not living and active and sharp like a sword in their heart and their life. And God used this event to awaken Peter to the reality of the ugliness that had creeped into his heart and the heart of those that he was doing ministry with, those that believed in the gospel of grace and were saved by the gospel of grace, but had ugliness in their heart that was not a reflection of God's because, see, God is working in your life and in my life to move us more to reflect his heart. So all this is taking place, and Peter has this wake-up call, this wake-up call that God's heart has no ounce of racism or discrimination or division or distancing from other people because they eat different or they look different or they have a different custom or a different background. And so those men stay with Peter and they wake up the next day and they head up to Caesarea. And as they're heading up there to go see Cornelius, it says that Cornelius gathers all of his friends and all of his family. God is using Cornelius to evangelize to his friends even before he believes in Jesus. So he gets all of his friends and all of his family to his house. You've got to hear, this guy Peter is coming. I, I, I had this, this vision. This angel came to me and told me that I need to send some men to come get him. And he's, they're coming back. They're inside the house. Peter knocks at the door. Opens the door. And as he opens the door and steps in, Cornelius falls before him to worship him. Peter says, stand up. I'm a man too. I'm just like you. You see, Peter is starting to get it. He sees what God is doing and what God is teaching him. And then he says this in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. He sees it. See, Peter hasn't been operating like this, but God awakened him to the reality of his heart, and Peter's heart now begins to reflect God's heart. He says, you guys know that this is not common. In fact, it's not even acceptable for Jews and non-Jews to, to be together in the same place, to be with one another, to share a meal. But God has shown me 
that no people are unclean or common, that there is no division, there is no levels to God's love towards people, there is no discrimination, that we are all the same. No one is less than, no one is greater than. We are all the same. You see, what is so incredible here is how God awakens Peter's heart to see more of who God is in his heart and the beauty of the gospel, that prophecy that Jesus said where people will come from the east and the west and they'll sit together at the same table with people who are from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israelites, because they're together in the kingdom. He's awakening Peter's heart to see this truth and to reflect this truth. And he's using Peter at the same time to see change and transformation happen in the heart of Cornelius and all of those in the room. Because Cornelius says, hey, let me tell you what happened. He shares the story with Peter. And then Peter goes on to share the gospel of grace with them. To share that Jesus has died for them. That he rose from the dead for them. That they are also invited into a relationship with God. That this gospel of Jesus is not just for Jews, it's for everyone. People from the east and the west. And he starts this gospel presentation with Cornelius and all his family and friends by saying, God shows no partiality. He doesn't discriminate. He shows no partiality. You see, there is radical unification happening here. Radical unification that is happening. I I want you to to understand how powerful this is. See, we are here today because the power of the gospel can radically unify people that are otherwise divided. See, God God can speak truth and he can speak his grace and he can bring renewal through anything. He can use a rock, he can use a flash of light, he can use a vision, he can use a donkey. In fact, he has in the Old Testament. God can use anything, but he chooses to use us primarily, to share the gospel of grace that is made available to everyone, that we are a people that do not divide against other people because that is not the reflection of our God's heart. He uses people like us. And I want you to imagine what those in the Roman society, in Caesarea and Joppa and in Jerusalem, what all these people begin to think when they see Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, Spending time together, eating together, supporting one another's businesses. Their kids are playing together. They're sharing resources and helping each other out when they're struggling. And then they're coming together to worship, and they have faith in the same God. Can you imagine the effect? You don't have to imagine because the church exploded in the first few centuries. Why? Because the love that God's people had for one another across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, was so profound, that love was so profound and so attractive that the gospel went out to all the corners of the known world because God's heart is beautiful. When you see God's heart, it is beautiful. And right now we are living in a time of I want to say fake love. We're living in a time where people are known more for what they hate than what they love. 
we are living in a time where people are divided against one another, where people are distancing themselves from others. And there is a challenge here. The challenge that is posed in this event that happens in the life of Peter and Cornelius and others is who are you actively loving? Not who do you claim to love, but who are you actively loving? Who are you practicing love towards? So I want to ask you a question. I want to actually ask you a question for you to ask yourself, which is, who do I struggle to love or even have a conversation with? Who do I struggle to love or even have a conversation with? Because you may not call people unclean, but you may call people toxic. You may call people brainwashed. You may label people foolish. You may label people racist. You may label people Marxist. You may put labels on people, and then the natural inclination of our heart when we put labels on people, when we see things in people that is unattractive or is harmful or is concerning, when we place that upon people, what do we naturally do? We distance ourselves from them, and we put up a wall. We divide ourselves from them. That is what we do as people. And it may be understandable why you are distancing yourself from some people and why there is a division between people. You see, the Jewish people were understandably divided against Gentile and non-Jewish people. They had reasons for it. They were being oppressed by the Romans. They had so many rights and privileges stripped from them. They had their land taken from them. They had their freedom taken from them. There was a reason why they were divided against them. But God's heart is different. God's heart calls us not to divide ourselves against other people. God's heart calls us not to distance ourselves from other people. Now, there are times where it is wise to put some distance between yourself and somebody else that could be causing you harm. There is discernment and wisdom there, certainly. But all too often, we divide ourselves against other people because it's uncomfortable to be around them, because we don't like them, because we'd rather label them and keep them away. And what are the effects of that? Because it starts very subtle. See, sin is so insidious. It starts really subtle. It starts just with distancing and, and dividing yourself against someone and being angry, which eventually leads to hate. I mean, all of these things that we can't stand, like hatred and racism, discrimination, they start subtle with distance and with division. And yet, we are called to be different. We are called to reflect not the heart that is normal in our society or normal in the people that we walk with and we live with and we spend time with. We are called to reflect our God's heart. And our God's heart does not divide and it does, does not distance from people. It reaches out to people that are sinners, people that are labeled, people that are dirty, people that are broken. People that God would understandably distance himself from being all of us. And yet he runs towards us. You see, God's love is not conditional. 
And God's love is also not unconditional. Now you may hear that, wait, wait, wait. I've always heard that God's love is unconditional. It's not unconditional. Unconditional means that God loves you just as you are. It's not true. God's love is not conditional. It's not unconditional. God's love is contra-conditional. He doesn't love you just the way you are. He loves you despite who you are, and he loves you in Christ. See, he loves you despite your brokenness and despite your sin and despite your mistakes and despite the division and despite the hatred that you have in your heart. Despite all of the things that you struggle with and all of your sin and all of your shame, he loves you despite that and he loves you in Christ. He sees you as righteous. He calls you one of his own. He gives you grace. You see, what God does is that there is a gap between you and me and all of us and God. And he builds a bridge from his heart, from where he is to you. That bridge is the cross. Jesus going to the cross to die for your sin. But see, God doesn't just build a bridge between your broken heart and his perfect heart through the cross. He does that, but then he walks with you on that bridge as you are ever increasingly becoming more like Christ. He loves you despite who you are, but he also walks with you for you to become who you've been made to be, which is more like Christ. That's contra-conditional love. That is the heart of our God. So if our God loves us like that, how are we to love others? We love them despite who they are. We don't distance ourselves. We don't divide ourselves against people. We recognize that God's love and his grace and his gospel that we rely upon, that we seek to reflect, is for all people, even our enemies. Right? We're told to love our enemies. We could only love our enemies if we understand that we were an enemy to God and that God loved us and now he walks with us making us ever increasingly like his son. And so who do you need to walk with? Who do you need to be a bridge to? Who do you need to not divide yourself against and distance yourself from, but go and seek out and focus on and pray for and show love actively to, despite who they are, to love them in Christ for Christ's sake? That's how we love. We love in Christ for Christ's sake. If you love for self-love, then you'll just divide yourself from everyone else and only keep people around you that make you feel comfortable and affirm everything that you say and feel. But we don't love with self-love. We love in Christ for Christ's sake. See, Peter got this. This is how he closes. I love this. He's talking to his friends in the circumcision party. And they're, they're, they're upset. But then he says this. Verse 16 Chapter 11, and I remembered the word that the Lord Jesus, he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? If God gives the same grace to your enemies, to the people that you distance yourself from, that you divide yourself against. If God's heart is for them too, who are you or who am I to stand in God's way if he wants to use us to be a bridge? See, we're to consume God's word in his heart so that we might reflect it. And when they heard this, those of that circumcision party, it says that they fell silent. 
and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, God's repentance is for all people. His grace is for all people. His gospel is for all people. His heart is for all people. So is ours, to be for all people. He was a bridge to us when we are enemies. We can be a bridge, too, to our enemies because we're to consume Christ and his word and reflect his heart. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would start this work in me, that you would show me the ways that I may distance myself from people and divide myself against people. God, it's easier to do that for all of us. Would you help me to feel the weight of your love, the beauty of your heart, to see it clearly? Would it change me? Would it change all of us that we might reflect your heart as you walk with us? Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you loved me. Thank you that you loved all of us joining in worship. Your heart is for all people. Would our heart be too? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.